What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. This week we had on McCall Coso from Wavemaker Partners. Wavemaker is a multi-strategy fund based in LA and Singapore that invests globally across consumer, enterprise, and digital media opportunities. Within his role, McCall focuses on emerging markets, and he documents a lot of his findings through writing at Emergent. In this talk, we discuss operating across geographies and stages, the next opportunity zone for innovation, the reversal of startup idea generation between established and emerging markets, and the super app wars and the logic behind bundling services. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everyone, thank you for kicking with us on the Confluence VC podcast. We have a huge contributor to our community with us today, Carl Coso from Wavemaker. Really good guy. Does some of our favorite writing in the industry. And yeah, yeah, you want to maybe kick us off and give us a little bit of background on yourself, your fun, and maybe some of the dope newsletters you've run? Sure. Thanks for having me on, guys. In terms of my background, it's a long story, but we'll go through it quickly. I'm half Spanish, half Pakistani, and I was born in Pakistan and grew up there for a few years and moved to Dubai and then moved to Africa. I moved to Ethiopia and went there all the way till I graduated high school. And then I moved to the US for university and quickly got sucked into the tech ecosystem, worked at two startups and then jumped to the investing side. And I've been there ever since. And I really love the investing side and find it extremely stimulating for, I think, a lot of reasons we'll get into. And LA came on my radar a few years ago as a place that had a lot of potential. Somebody put it on my radar. I started looking at the data, seed funding, companies, GDP size, population, and put it all together and said, you know what, I think this might be a major technology hub in the next few years. So I said, let me you know, move here, build a great network and continue doing what I'm doing in the VC space. And the last few years have been great. LA has really exploded in importance and a lot of great companies have been started in the last few years and many more even in stealth mode and people don't know about. And I joined a fund called Wavemaker and Wavemaker is a cross-border fund, an office in LA and Singapore. We invest across Southeast Asia and the US, pre-seed series A. So we invest across a pretty broad section of the world, right? There are 600 million people in Southeast Asia. There are 300 million people in the US. And these are you know, some of the largest and most dynamic economies in the world. But given my international background and my international perspective, that's led me to be fascinated with tech and emerging markets. And I've been spending a lot of time with Waymaker investing there and just meeting founders and advising them. And I realized that in the US, especially, people don't really know too much about what's going on in the tech world outside of the US uh, because there's so much going on here. And across the world, there's really a massive wave of digitization and innovation happening of various kinds. And the thing that got me was that some of these companies in emerging markets were even bigger than companies here and don't get as much press. And they, some of them reach astronomical scale. So I decided to fill that gap by writing a weekly newsletter about these companies. And it's called Emergent. And every week I pick one that's pretty big and I break it down and 
Uh, so you start to notice patterns and commonalities across these business models and these geographies. And it's, it's my investing MBA. That's the way I like to think about it in emerging markets. Yo, that's super dope. We we're big fans. So right now there's clearly like a, a swarm of content venture. Yep. And the plan I have this thesis of you can either be a content creator or a content curator. And if you're going to be a content creator, you need to go hard. <laughs> and if you're going to be a curator, you need to actually be on the ball for who's going hard. I think we've done a mix of the two, maybe on the podcast side, we decided to go hard, but on our newsletters and things of that nature and within our forums, tried to be the best curators we can. And I just want to give you a shout out for putting out good work, man. You're definitely stepping up to the plate in terms of being a content creator and what you do especially at the volume that you do. I would love to take a moment back and talk a little bit more about Wavemaker because at the end of the day, this is going to go to a ton of investors. <laughs> and I want to give you all some gas and some deal flow because you all have a really rich history. Like you all have been around for like 20 years. And I'm curious as to like how it got started, how the fund has evolved over the years. And I got a few other questions in, in regards to that as well after you give a little, get a little uh, background there. Yeah, absolutely. It's quite an interesting story, to be honest. And we're really under the radar. So a lot of people haven't really heard of us. Uh, we're a bit better known in Southeast Asia because there are just fewer firms. But here we're really under the radar. I and mean, that's just the personality of the founders. They, they don't like PR, press. They came up in a time in the venture world where PR and press marketing was irrelevant and non-existent. So I think that's really shaped the way they've approached it, even as the landscape has changed. So the founder of Wavemaker, Eric, is Filipino originally. And he came to the U.S. for university, similar to me, right? Some, similar story. And he founded two startups, sold them. And then as an interim thing, he decided to start Wavemaker. Just as an interim thing, he wasn't trying to be a full-time VC. And in that first fund, it was just a test fund, $6 million, I think it was, or $8 million. Just him and a couple of his friends' money. And he had some pretty big companies in that fund, like MindBody and Viagogo and some others. And it did really well. And that sort of, he likes to call it his third startup. So... Wavemaker is his third startup, and that was 17 years ago. And the firm started growing from there. And then in 2011, he actually met someone who went to the same high school as him in the Philippines, but was a few years older, so they didn't overlap. And Paul, this guy, said, look, he's a repeat entrepreneur as well, sold three companies. He said, I want to get into VC, but I want to do it in Southeast Asia because we're really excited about what's happening here. And I believe, and this is Paul, that... This is where the next big thing is going to happen. And given that they're both Filipino and understood the region, they decided to go after it. And Tomasek anchored the first fund, small way. It was a small test fund, a $5 million fund in Southeast Asia, just to see what was out there. Are there interesting companies? Can we find them? Can we invest in them? Will they raise downstream financing? That was, these were all the questions for fund one, a test fund. And all those questions were answered yes. And the next fund went from about $6 million to $66 million by fund two and has grown since then. And so the DNA of WaveMaker is really to go to underserved markets before they're obvious, right? 2011 Southeast Asia is totally different than 2021 Southeast Asia. So a lot of people looked at them and said, look, you guys are crazy. And we follow that in the US. We spent a lot of time in the Midwest over the last five years, investing quite heavily in, in places that people don't traditionally think are technology hubs. And we've done most of it over Zoom, by the way, which we can get into. And now the next frontiers for Wavemaker, we're looking at are some of the other regions of the world. So South Asia in particular, we've been spending a lot of time and I've been spending a lot of time there because I'm half Pakistani. So we've been looking at Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka, which have 400 million people, if, and not if you don't even look at India, and are growing extremely rapidly and adding millions of smartphone users. 
And it reminds us of Southeast Asia in 2011. Right now, still, it's a place people are too scared to go to. I don't think you can build big companies in, but 400 million people, that's a big market, young populations and growing incomes over time. And so we've made now one investment in Pakistan, soon to be two. And we are pretty actively looking in Bangladesh and Sri Lanka as well. Love you, brother. Two questions. One, how do you feel that the fund being the age that it is at this point and having legacy impacts you all? Do you think that's a good or bad thing? And then two, how is operating across geographies impacted you all? This is something that I think about as a lot of our community matures and thinks about, will they become partners of legacy firms, build their own, and then how they design them? So I'm very curious as to your opinion here. Yeah, I think the beauty of WaveMaker is that the firm is extremely unorthodox, and that's how the partners describe themselves. So aside from the core funds, we also help sort of new funds get off the ground. We do joint venture funds in sector-specific areas. So WaveMaker 360 Health is a joint venture fund between us and a healthcare advisory group going after the healthcare space. Thinline Capital is a joint venture fund in the clean tech space that we've got off the ground. And there are a couple more in the works. And then we do SPVs, right? The firm has done SPVs for a long time and deployed over hundred million just in SPVs and later stage deals in our portfolio. And we have WaveMaker Labs, which is the in-house startup studio where we build robotic process automation companies from the ground up. And we have a team of 25 engineers working on just that in, in LA. And so the firm does all these things. And traditionally, these are all segmented in different companies in the tech world, but we have it all under one roof. And that's because the partners are unorthodox. And so I don't think we have too much technical debt or legacy approach weighing us down. The firm really reinvents itself every few years. And to, that's credit to the partners that they're open to it. So when I joined the US fund, we, we went through a big growth spurt in the last sort of three, four years, even on the labs team. And I think we're at the beginning of another massive growth spurt because there are a couple of new projects coming online. And so the firm's always changing. And I think that's important because the tech world is moving faster than ever. And then in terms of working across geographies, we have separate funds for the US and Southeast Asia. So the risk is pooled in those two funds and LPs can pick what kind of risk they want. They can take both, they can take one. And obviously the fund strategies are slightly different because the regions are slightly different. And then you all have the joint venture funds as well. So LPs can look at those if they want sector specific exposure and then SPVs if they want opportunistic, more direct exposure. So it's, I think, looking at both the entrepreneurs and the LPs as customers and realizing the different needs. And ultimately the VCs are supposed to be intermediaries that enable the smart distribution and allocation of capital so that both sides are winning and we're trying to do our best. Really? No, you all have definitely crushed it over the years. And I have a few friends who are close to you all. And I think that makes a ton of sense. Not many funds have taken that innovative of an approach. And yeah, that's, that's something that I'll know for my future plans <laughs> in terms of like different pathways. So thank you, brother. Okay. Now that WaveMaker has gotten some credit, I'll give you one second to say what you want people to maybe push your way. And then I really want to dive into your writing. Yeah, I think, you know, we're on the market, obviously, and we really like B2B marketplaces and, and, and legacy software. So that's where I spend most of my time is in parts of the economy that only discovered the internet in 2020. That's what we get very excited about across both sides of the practice. And obviously things that span both regions. So import, export businesses, trade, logistics. There's a lot of inter sort of change between Europe 
and on Europe, Asia, and the US. Actually, through LA, the port of LA is and Long Beach are the two biggest ports in the US. And so th that's something we're uniquely equipped to understand because we're on both sides. Perfect. All right, everybody, you heard them. Let's hope that pushes some good stuff your way. I'm sure it will after they read your pieces. All right. So when I think about your writing, you pivoted earlier, was it a few months ago, I believe, from your trajectory newsletter to your emergent newsletter. While That's I'm right. super, super hype to dive into your, your emergent piece, you had some really dope articles on trajectory. Like you talked about deglobalization, money laundering, surveillance in public spaces, and a ton of other stuff. You want to maybe talk really quickly about some of your favorite pieces or topics or maybe for a lot of these VCs who want to avoid who knows what the type of payouts, how they can monitor their money. Yeah, man. yeah. Just dive in real quick. Yeah, I mean, the, I originally started, so prior to Emergent, a newsletter called Trajectory. And my thesis for that was being top of mind with other VCs, especially associates and principals is really important to do this job properly. But I don't want to har harass people all the time and you know, send them a deck or try to call them and do a call every week that I don't want to harass people. So I thought, what if I find a non-intrusive way by just sharing my thoughts every so often through a newsletter? So that was the original thesis. And so Trajectory was just me following my curiosity for about two years. And so it spans a lot of random topics that probably don't make sense to most people, but I just was following my curiosity. And so what I learned from that was that it's harder to attract an audience if there's not a clear value prop of what are you getting if you sign up for this. If it's just a lot of different topics and deep dives on things that seem unconnected, that's a different sort of value prop than with Emergent, which was very specific. It's if you want to know about tech and emerging markets, like this is the newsletter to sign up for what you're getting. So, you know, I, I was just following my curiosity. Like, I think I've grown up around the world. And so globalization is something I've seen firsthand, but I've also seen that it's starting to reverse, which I think you touched on the deglobalization piece I wrote. You know, supply chains have been shifting even prior to COVID. Onshoring of manufacturing into the US and Western Europe has been enabled by you know, better manufacturing technology, 3D printing, and so on, and national security priorities. And that's only been accelerated by, you know, the confrontation with China. And COVID exposed how vulnerable complex supply chains are, especially of key goods like medical goods, right? You know, there's a difference between you know, maybe semiconductors for your iPhone versus medical goods, which you need urgently sometimes. And so that's a trend that's been building for some time. But I think, you know, there's a flip side to deglobalization, which is also partially decoupling in the internet and we're seeing that between the us and china and i actually think that's generally a good thing because i don't think western technology companies should dominate sectors across the earth i don't think that's healthy most of the ad dollars digital ad dollars in the world flow to menlo park and palo alto through google and, and facebook so they're just funneling all this money into that part of the world and it's not being redistributed back and that shouldn't be a dynamic that we see across all these different sectors, right? Finance, fintech, enterprise software, all that. You want local companies, you want local giants, you want people employed on the ground, you want wealth generator on the ground. So I think deglobalization is happening both in the physical world, but also on the internet in many ways. And the era of global Western technology companies is over. I think it was the network effect businesses, primarily Facebook, Google, et cetera. But most tech companies now are not network effect businesses, enterprise software and fintech, depending on the product, insure tech, that kind of thing. And it's about on the money laundering point, which you brought up, I think this was uh, after the Panama papers were leaked and I was just reading through them out of curiosity. And it's just, it's obscene, uh, the stuff that's in those leaks and the yeah. 
the level of corruption and how blatant it is really and how it's tolerated and so i was just trying to understand how this works how does dirty money black money move through the system because you know we're, when we're looking at fintech companies the first question is always kyc right how are you doing this that's our primary concern so how come that those rules don't seem to apply to these big institutions and it turns out there are quite a few loopholes you know and the main one really is by using multiple shell companies to hide who the beneficial owner is of an asset so who the actual owner is so if there's a house here owned by i don't know uh wave maker company llc which is then owned by philippines company llc which is then owned by i don't know saudi arabia llc and you keep adding these layers of complexity so that regulators don't actually know who owns the asset and how to tax it accordingly and this it's a loophole basically across most of the world that the U.S. Treasury has proposed to close and Europe is closing soon by requiring beneficial ownership to be disclosed. But that's only sort of the tip of the iceberg of the way this is done. Uh, and it's a global phenomenon. There are, in the Panama Papers, there are famous and important people, politicians, celebrities, businessmen from literally everywhere on earth publicly discloses using Panama as a money laundering hub, essentially. And I think one of my favorite pieces is probably the one of the ones I wrote in 2019 about a world data organization. Now we have the World Trade Organization for trade in the physical world, but we don't have anything equivalent for the digital world, the world of bits. And we are increasingly seeing problems, right? You have GDPR, which is a global regulation technically for any businesses that want to do business in Europe. If you don't comply with GDPR, then you will not be allowed to do business in Europe. And so that is Europe uh, globalizing its regulation around technology companies. And it has been a model for California and other countries uh, or other areas to, to model off of. And we're seeing taxation in Europe versus the US versus China, access, China doesn't last most Western companies in. You know, the world of bits requires, I think, a global organization for regulation, setting out some rules. The internet is governed by an NGO, basically a decentralized NGO, but they don't have the capacity to deal with some of the complex issues that we're facing now. So I personally think a world data organization modeled off the World Trade Organization is the way to go. We need a global body that sort of sets the rules of the playing field on the internet and how technology companies can do business in other areas and how we make sure it's more of an even playing field because China has used the great firewall basically of not allowing Western companies in as a way to promote local technology growth. And so we have Tencent and we have Alibaba and we have Meituan and we have Pinduoduo because they don't have to compete against these heavily funded Western giants. And if you're in Nigeria, you might want to follow a similar model. Or if you're in Indonesia, although they haven't had to so far. So maybe you don't need that level of protection, but you want to make sure that, at least in my view, that you have local enterprises and local businesses generating, doing business in the region, generating the wealth and income and keeping in the area. Because otherwise the global economy becomes so unbalanced that we get a winner takes all dynamic that's even more profound than it is now. Yeah, that's scary, brother. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting stuff. I'm an optimist about the way the world is going. I think you know, the last trajectory piece I wrote was about the clean and green energy revolution. And basically, we've hit a tipping point in 2020. Amid all the chaos, I don't think a lot of people noticed, but solar in some setups is now the cheapest form of energy generation in human history. So it is the most economically feasible way to produce energy and depending on the, the setup. And it wasn't before, it was too expensive before, and it was just unrealistic to see you know, countries in Latin America, Africa, Asia adopting solar at scale when it's way more expensive than other approaches. That's not flipped. 
If it's not the cheapest approach, it, it is also the most logical approach or financially wise approach. And battery technology or lithium ion technology has advanced tremendously. I think it's dropped in price by 87% over a 10 year period, which is huge. And obviously you need grid level storage for renewables because they don't, the sun doesn't shine 24 seven and the wind doesn't blow all day. But uh, those two sort of trends are aligning such that I think we can green the grid at scale across the world starting now. And I'm really optimistic personally on the climate. I'm not a pessimist. I think we'll get there. Agreed. Agreed. I definitely believe that that's going to be one of the hotter sectors over the next three to five years. And we're finally starting to see some of the innovations we need. With that, how about we dive a bit into, into your new newsletter, which has been doing numbers, by the way. You did some really cool pieces there on Tokopedia, Jumia, Grab, and then one of our first syndicates, Flutterway. You care to Sweet. tell us the folks about some of that stuff or any, anything you're comfortable diving into? Yeah, for sure. Like I said, it's my investing MBA, I think, with emerging markets. Just pick a company, break it down, try to understand what they're doing and what their strategy is. And you see a lot of commonalities across them and a lot of differences as well, which points to local context, right? There's actually a company in the Wavemaker portfolio that I haven't written about yet, but I will, called Gudang Ada, which is a B2B marketplace for wholesalers. So if you're a small mom and pop retailer, you can buy your stuff online, your you know oils and basic necessities and whatever you would stock online through Gudang Ada and deliver it to you, which is very similar to Udan in India, which I wrote a piece about. The difference is in Indonesia, because it's a country of 17,500 islands, logistics is 25% of the economy because of that. Versus in other places, it's 5 to 10% of the economy. In most places, up to 20, depending on it. And so that that's fascinating, right? How these companies adapt to the local context. And Grab, I think, is probably my favorite piece so far. I'm a big fan of the company. First, because they beat Uber in the region. And that was one of the first signs that Western companies, I think, can no longer win in global markets the way they used to. The competition is different. And the sort of blitzscaling strategy maybe doesn't work as well in markets if you don't have uh, that local context. And so Grab has become the dominant ride-sharing company in the region and now you know, is in food delivery and delivery of other items and is moving aggressively into financial services. So they've had Grab pay for a while and you can do a lot with that. But they finally got approval in Singapore uh, banking license last year. And so they just went public and raised $4 billion in their pipe, and their SPAC pipe, which is a lot of money. And now they're armed to the teeth and going to fight an intense battle with some of the other big companies in the region for consumer wallets and discretionary income. And they're a super app, right? Just like... Uh, some of the other players in the region are C and Goto now, which recently merged. And it's just fascinating because you don't see these kind of battles in the US. The US economy, first of all, is just huge. And there you look at the financial system and there are tens of thousands of banks and credit unions and insurance companies. You don't have that in a lot of other places. So here there's a lot more room to compete versus in other places, the competition's intense because it's still early days in a lot of these economies. I got to get your take on Flutterwave. Yeah, it's, uh, it's great that you guys invested. That's awesome. I'm a fan of Flutterwave. I think they have a lot of competition. There's no doubt about it. And Nigeria is, I think, a great place to go after this kind of business. Nigeria is a massive. It's just, it's crazy, actually. It has about uh, 200 million people today. But in 2100, they'll have 800 million people. So it's going to be the third or fourth biggest country in the world, depending on whose estimates you take. And hopefully they manage that well. There's a dividend 
But that's just a gigantic growth story. And Wave has done really well in building, you know, sort of a payment solution for merchants and for customers or consumers rather, and it's grown really rapidly. But like I said, there's a lot of competition within the space, right? Paystack was bought by uh, Stripe recently, and obviously Stripe's a great company. In North Africa, Fowry in Egypt just went public, and the market is supporting a $2 billion valuation. And I think that was US dollars. It might've been Egyptian pounds, but I think it was US dollars, but don't quote me on that. Like I said, I grew up in Africa. People don't underestimate the scale of the continent. It takes 14 hours to fly from Egypt to South Africa, so top to bottom. And it takes 14 hours to fly from east to west, from the west tip to the eastern tip. So it's gigantic. The continent is massive. There are 1 billion people and there'll be 2 billion people by 2050. So it's not a winner takes all market. I think there's a ton of room. So there, I think Flutterwave can do super well and Fowry can do super well and Paystack can do super well. It really depends on the strategy. And I think Flutterwave is pursuing a much more aggressive geographic expansion strategy than anyone else in the market right now. And that is going to give them an early lead in a lot of markets that maybe people are not paying attention to. The infrastructure is pretty much the same. So it's a question now of how do you play on the field and how much money do you raise? And it, it is typically mutually exclusive, right? Payments. Yep. So you earlier you dropped a, a term, super app. So for, I feel like most of our investors here who do any international investing or pay attention to international markets, we've started to see them emerge in Asia and some starting to emerge in Latin America, Southeast Asia, et cetera. But you wrote a really great piece on it about the wars of super apps. One, can you give us a, a quick overview of what is a super app for those who don't know? And then two, uh, some examples of folks who are winning and why. Yeah, this is a very Asian phenomena, the super app. Um, and one of the theses behind my newsletter, Emergent, is that the chain of causality has reversed in technology now. Typically, a company would be founded in the US and do well and then be copied overseas. So Yelp started and did well in the US. And then basically, there were 5,000 competitors in China, of which one of them was Meituan, which won that massive proxy battle and has become a massive company. But now, the chain of causality is reversing. So Meituan started as a Yelp competitor but has then branched out and become a super app in China. Uh, and they offer a range of services. They offer over 200 different services to their customers and have huge share of their discretionary income and it grows a huge scale. And now companies like Uber are copying that model. So I don't know if you've been on Uber recently, but every time I go on it, they have a new button offering a new service. And it's looking a lot more like the uh, super apps in Asia that I've used. And so that's the thesis is that the chain of causality is reversed and that Western companies are now looking internationally for inspiration. I think TikTok is probably a good example. Uh, it's definitely changing the roadmap of Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat and how they approach the market. And that's a Chinese company that's changing the dynamics in the US. That wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And I think that's a really interesting nuance in the tech world that we should really keep track of and think a lot about as investors. In terms of the super app definition, that's loose, but the, it's basically an app that offers a lot of different products and services to their customers. And I think the main thesis of a super app is to aggregate consumer attention and demand into one app application experience and use this to capture more and more of their discretionary income. So can I be your go-to provider of everything, basically? So on Grab, I was in Thailand a while ago. On Grab, you can get a ride and you can get food and you can ride on a motorcycle. And you, there was Grab Massage as well. You like you could have someone come over and give you a massage. <laughs> there was like a doctor checkup, checkup thing, like all these things, which Uber doesn't provide. And if you've only seen Uber before, you would never would have imagined this was possible. But the thesis is let's aggregate 
all this attention, consumer attention demand in one place, and then let's capture as much of your wallet, your discretionary income as possible. Versus in the West, I think companies are focused more on market share than your discretionary income. So Uber wants to have 100% of the ride share market in the US. It doesn't want to have 100% of your consumer wallet, right? Because you're spending money at Macy's and Amazon and so on. But in the sort of East, in these super app markets, they're trying to capture as much of your discretionary spending as possible. It's a different approach to building a company. They're not so concerned about market share because typically they, they're just not that many competitors to work against. And they're seeing you know, a sort of network effects to providing a lot of services. And it's, it's really interesting overall. And I think these proxy wars we're seeing right in China and in, in East Asia and South Asia, that's a lot of money being burnt, but consumers are the one benefiting, right? If their discounts, if their rewards and so on. So we're going to see how it plays out. But I personally believe uh, that there's room in these markets for all of these companies to survive. I don't think it's a winner takes all dynamic. The question is your rank ordering. Are you going to be number one or number two or three or four? Where are you going to fall in that lineup? True, true. Yeah, I am still... In the fintech world, we looked at Europe first. In the super app world, we're looking at Asia first. And then you start to see it comes to the US and Europe. I'm curious as to like when you believe we'll actually see real super apps in the US. Like I know Uber is going to try, but are they best positioned to do it? Is a, a Facebook or Instagram best position to do? Is it the telecom companies? Is it like where do you see that playing out in the US or Europe if it's going to? Yeah. I think this is a great question and it's a tough one to answer. I think the difference between the Western world and the rest of the world is that in most of the world, your mobile phone is your only computing device. It's your only electronic device. And so it is your gateway to the internet, to e-commerce, to financial services, at least digital financial services. It is, you know, literally the most important thing you own in a lot of these places. Versus in the West, a lot of people have laptops or have work laptops and they have at least another electronic device that can access the internet and they can check their bank account there. It's probably a better experience and so on. So there's not as you know, much, I think, pressure on having just one device uh, as there is in other markets. And that shapes how consumers approach things. And then it's a question of who has the best application experience and who delivers the most value. And what they've done in Asia is these super apps all build consumer wallets, grab pay, go pay. Uh, Meetwan Pay, WeChat, Alipay, they, they all build financial services into the platform because you capture more margin on each transaction, but it, it becomes a natural synergy to just spend more money on there when you have your wallet there, it's connected with your bank account, we could start paying for other stuff. So in the US, I think, and Europe, uh, it's a little harder to build a super app for that reason, but people also have a lot of legacy services to our earlier point that they're used to. So digital banking and QR payments and the stuff we see in emerging markets have not taken off in a big way in in the West because credit cards are pretty good and, and debit cards are pretty good. Is you know mobile payments 10 times better than a credit card? Honestly, I don't think it is. I think maybe it's two times better or less. It's not that much better. So people have stuck to credit cards and debit cards because we have a lot of legacy customs, you might say in how people operate in the West and how they do business. Now, COVID shook a lot of that up, especially in some of the legacy business sectors. So we're seeing a lot of acceleration, but I think it's going to be difficult to see a WeChat style super app in the US, just because there's so many established companies competing for your wallet, your discretionary income. 
and they're all taking pieces of it. So you might have SoFi for, I don't know, your student loan repayments, but also have a Bank of America account or a JP Morgan account. And you use Dollar Shave Club for your razors, but you also go to Unilever for, I don't know, shaving cream. And you have so many service providers, if you will, in your life, because there are so many. And it's hard to reach huge economies of scale in the US because of you know how complex the geography is, how big it is. And you might say antitrust regulation, but... Agreed, agreed. Clay, we haven't heard your voice yet. Nicole, how about you take a moment to ask us anything you want? We'll answer it with 100% honesty and be very thoughtful. And Clay can take the first crack at it, then I'll come in. Okay. Um, what's the biggest regret you guys have? Cool. That's pretty deep. Just in life or like business? I'll leave it to you. Jeez. Okay. I don't know. I think starting out, I tried to over plan things a lot instead of just testing, getting iterations. So that slowed me down with a lot of things like that could be life, business, whatever. And just didn't really allow any short feedback loops. I think I just got over the hump there and just said like, this doesn't really matter. Like I should just start testing stuff more often, but it took me a while to get there. So that's probably one regret I have. Sweet. Yeah, for me, I think, uh, I think when I was choosing the second venture fund I went to work for, I didn't think enough about, like I thought about the pay and like the freedom, but I didn't think as much about fit or like trajectory of worldviews in regards to like style of fun and style of investment and style of platform and branding and all those types of things as I should have. I think I went for something that was very different from my last shop versus like really dialing into what were like the best parts of my last shop plus the few things that I wanted to be better. And then like finding a place that had both of those or like just sticking with my first shop and like figuring out how to fix it. I think I, I probably rushed into that second step a bit. And then even though the people are amazing in, in their own. And then in life, in life probably... I don't have many regrets, but I would say from a relationship perspective, I think doubling down on being young, but also having the perfect person kind of thing was a regret that I had and that I should have probably either like fully committed to the being young person kind of thing and just say, I don't do relationships forever or, or just like foregoing uh, youth. I think I, I probably put myself like a interesting, like, up and down situation of a young 20 year old like uh sweetheart kind of thing <laughs> but yeah those are regrets or, or learnings that i've had in life i love it real talk yeah clay you wanna uh, hey you actually you want to add that question now i that's one of the the most authentic questions we've ever received do you have any regrets that you want to share on air or uh, would you like us to just jump to the quick fire I actually have a life philosophy around this question. That's probably why I ask it. I think don't regret what you've done in the past because it's what you wanted at the moment. So that is how I think about things. There's certainly things that could be done different, but you know, I'm not unhappy with where I am today. So I don't think there's a reason to regret anything because you never know. It's so complicated, all these decisions and life is random and spontaneous. And so I'm gonna make peace with all the decisions you have, you've made in the past. 
feel like that's a good mindset to have. Same for sure. You definitely um, look at everything that you learn. Uh, 100%. All right. I know we're running up on time here, so I'm going to try to fit in these quick fires as quick as I can. So, McCall, we have these five questions at the end meant to be answered in two sentences or less. We're not great at actually hitting that, but we try to give those guardrails. First question we have is what is a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? Yeah, people say follow your passion. I think it's bad advice. I say go where you're in your zone of brilliance. Love it. Okay, next one. In the last year, what new belief, behavior, habit most improved your life? During COVID, I started taking a long break in the middle of the day, just given time zone differences of where I was. So I would take like a three-hour break in the middle of the day after working for four hours. And I'd watch TV or eat or exercise or sleep even. And that recharges you for the second four-hour wave. And I'd work later. But I, I'm in love with that. I don't know if I can ever go back to a straight eight-hour eight workday because... I'm so much more productive that way, and I'm all about it. I totally agree. I feel like I've talked to so many people, especially over the past 12, 15 months, that are, like, bragging about how long their days have become. And that sounds like there's almost a, there's this lack of boundaries that people are setting when they're working, like, 12, 15-hour days behind a computer. It just seems, like, exhausting. And there's no way you can actually be productive for that long. So I totally agree. I take as many breaks as I can throughout the day. I think it makes me think a lot more clearly. So yeah, I think that's good advice. All right, I got three more here. So aside from having to say no all the time, what's the worst part about venture? I think as a young person, the lack of clarity around your career, unlike other industries and how it will progress. Agree again. We could talk about that for hours, but we'll spare everyone else the time. But Totally agree on that. I feel like Tyler and I, that was what made us spark it off the beginning. We just connected over his path that we didn't really know what the next two to three years were going to look like. Didn't know if we were in partner track roles. There was just like no clarity around it. Felt like we were doing a lot of the work, not getting a lot of the credit. Anyway, different story. Totally agree with all you're saying. Best piece of advice for junior VCs or those aspiring to break into venture? Ask yourself if you really want it because it's much harder than you think in every way. Yep. And last one, who's a mentor that you'd want to give credit to? Yeah, uh, this is an interesting question. I've been speaking over the last two years with some of my close friends a lot about just work and career. And they're like a decentralized mentor, essentially. The five, four, five, six people I talk to regularly get different perspectives, bounce off each other. That's really helpful. It's like a brain trust almost for me that I can say, I'm thinking about this and they'll give me five, six different viewpoints on it. It's awesome. That's awesome. Cool. That's, that wraps up the questions for me. Perfect, man. It's been an amazing time kicking with you. Perfect. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks for the opportunity. Cool. We'll talk soon. Cheers. Huge thanks again to McCall for coming on. We hope that each of you were able to pick up something valuable from this talk. If you're looking to get in touch with McCall, we've linked his social info in the description below and also his contact info is in the Confluence VC directory. 
for next steps. If you're an investor and have not already signed up to join, we encourage you to check out our website at www.confluence.vc to submit your info to become a member. If you have any feedback for us, please feel free to reach out directly either to Tyler at tyler at gpv.com or myself at clay at muckercapital.com. Hope to hear from you all soon.